Coming up this hour, we're talking Chicago Bears, we're talking taxes, and we're talking smartphones. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey everyone, happy Monday. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Did you know there is a whole heap of places you can find us? The first and maybe the most important, which is sad to say, uh, Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's where we post all of our articles. You can weigh in there. You can shoot us a private message if that's more your jam. You can also find the podcast wherever it is you get podcasts. And uh, we say it every show, but if you wouldn't mind, subscribing, rating, and reviewing helps us out a whole ton. And we're also on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Any interaction, even if you disagree, is good interaction. And we welcome you to weigh in or interact in whatever way you see fit. And uh, Brian, I got a couple of articles here. The first two, I don't want to spend a lot of time on, but I, I did want to give you a chance. I know you're not a Chicago Bears fan necessarily, mm-hmm. but I'm assuming I'm assuming you watch the game anyway. Or is that a an unfair assumption? Uh, unfair assumption, but I'm fully aware of what happened in the game yesterday. We had many softball and baseball games yesterday. And uh, yeah, I am a huge sports fan, as we've shared on here. Although uh, I am a diehard fan of quite possibly the worst team in the NFL right now, that being the New York Giants. And so I, I'm. Oh, I, I, I take issue with that, NFL. but uh, but I'll take that. That's your fine. team won yesterday. Your I know. Yesterday. I know. <laughs> yeah, I didn't I didn't mean just now. I kind of meant like overall in the history Good of the point. NFL. <laughs> oh, yeah. I only mean right now. <laughs> I'm talking more holistically, but uh, yeah, Good just point. give us give us a brief. Just a brief flyover about the the thing that everyone's talking about from yesterday's game. Yeah, it, and it's kind of been hanging out there for a while when the Bears signed Nick Foles and but named Mitchell Trubisky the starter for the year. The Bears went into yesterday's game in Atlanta two and zero. Trubisky started through a terrible interception. They were down twenty six to ten. They benched him, brought Foles in, and he threw three touchdown passes. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, and the Bears won. And then only earlier this afternoon, um, uh, Coach Nagy made the announcement that everybody was expecting that not only will Foles start this week, but it's not a week-to-week basis. He said it's his team for the foreseeable future. So there wild? has been a change at the helm uh, here for the Chicago Bears. And uh, I do think Bears fans need to be careful. Nick Foles, there's a reason he was available this offseason, but hmm. he at the very least, I think, is much less mistake-prone than Mitchell Trubisky. And Trubisky has had lots of shots at this. Uh, and so the Bears, who are unbelievably three and zero, like <laughs> they could be zero and three, but unbelievably three and zero, have a new quarterback. I think a lot of people thought this was coming, but it was pretty uh, dramatic yesterday when they yanked them. I mean, team was undefeated, and they pulled them. And uh, now Nick Foles, it's his team going it, forward. It felt a little like a movie, actually. I was like, am I watching like a scene from it? It just felt like I could hear the underscore. Like, oh man, this is happening now again. You know. Ask us again next weekend how we're feeling about all of this. But yeah. either way, it's just Chicago show. It was on everyone's mind. I figured we'd talk about it. An- another story I want to talk about real briefly. So it looks like there's a Passion of the Christ sequel. And Jim Caviezel says it might be the biggest film in history. Uh, have you heard anything about this? No, I only heard about it when I read the article here for the first time that it's going to focus on the resurrection. And uh, I remember when the Passion came out. Uh, how much buzz it got. I, I remember our church that I was at at the point, at that point at Glenelg Bible church, we rented out a theater, like a lot of churches did. Yeah. And right. Thought, it was right around Easter time. So I'm excited to see this. Uh, you know, I thought they did a good job with the first one. I, I haven't seen it in a long time, but uh, so hopefully they do a good job with this one. Caviezel says a lot of things in there about kind of the reaction in Hollywood to him having played Jesus and kind of what it did to his career. Uh, so I, 
I, sure, I'm excited to see it. You know, I don't see a lot of movies, so chances are I may not see it in the theaters. <laughs> but uh, I'm I'm excited for it, and I do think it'd be really interesting to get our our old friend Dallas Jenkins to weigh on this at some point, just to get his thoughts as he's yeah. making the chosen and uh, what his thoughts are. But yeah, how about you? I'm excited to see it. So what about you? Yeah, I don't know that I I don't know that excited is the word I would initially choose, but I don't even know that excited was the word I used. With the first one, same thing, rented yeah. out of theater. It was the first time I'd ever seen a movie in the theater that when it was done, the room was just dead right. quiet. Like it was such a bizarre experience and it was brutal. And of course, you know, Mel Gibson's been in the headlines a number of times since then, which makes the sequel now potentially feel a little strange. Maybe. I don't know. But yeah, yeah the resurrection was sort of like a footnote in the first one. And I remember a bunch of people being <laughs> really upset about that. So it that part I think will be really interesting. I would love to have Dallas Wayne because it feels like right now there's a whole slew of like Christian or Christian light type shows and movies and whatnot. And again, it'll it'll be curious to see what like a big Hollywood budget you know right. will do to uh, to that story. But yeah, I think I'm I'm at the very least intrigued. I'm optimistic and intrigued. And uh, you know, in the history of hard right turns, here's one for the books. Uh, real briefly, <laughs> with the remaining time. <laughs> Let's let's talk. Uh, let's talk taxes. You want to? I'll yeah. just stop there. What do you think? I don't like paying them, but <laughs> <laughs> good. Keep it general. Keep it light. That's smart. You know, the 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 uh, huge New York Times story, which was six pages of their newspaper today. Yeah, uh, that is all that the news channels are talking about right now. Uh, that makes the claim that over the past uh, I hope I get this right off the top of my head, but over the past 15 years, President Trump hasn't paid federal income tax in 10 of them. Uh, and the two years while he was president, he paid $750. And so uh, people have done with this story what you would expect to be done. Uh, I watched some of the news coverage this morning. Uh, and those uh, who are uh, supporters of President Trump have already deemed this fake news. And, right. uh, and in all fairness, President Trump and his attorney said this is not true at all and that he has, quote, uh, paid millions of dollars in taxes. Uh, but people on the left or who are less uh, supportive of President Trump have said this is yet another indicator of his character, that what he says doesn't match what he has done, because there was a lot of um, the ways that that they claim to have gotten at this number, how he avoided pay- paying taxes is what bothers a lot of us. Uh, my biggest takeaway from it, man, is uh, something that I heard somebody say on the Today Show this morning who said flippantly, uh, this is what rich business people do. They know how to get around the system. And I, mm. my biggest takeaway was that's part of the problem, just in general, with our tax code and uh, who, who ends up paying a lot of things. Uh, it was interesting that within an hour of the New York Times having this up, that the Democrats already had a full commercial. It does make you wonder, how did they know to make a commercial already? Sure. Uh, so all sorts of things, but it just is yet another thing where you go, okay, uh, one side's claiming fake news, the other side is claiming bombshell. Uh, and it just reminds us just how partisan all of this is. And it also reminds us, like I said, uh, just there is something about our tax system that it seems like the richest of the rich uh, as this person on the Today Show said this morning, they're really good at getting around paying taxes. Yeah, I- I'm wondering if uh, you predict any other major like twists and turns in the in the coming weeks after this sort of massive unveiling. Like, do you anticipate like, okay, I'm waiting for the shoe to drop, though, or I'm waiting for the counter argument, or 
or do you, I mean, I'm kind of putting you on the spot, I guess, or do you buy it? Do I buy the story? Yeah. Uh, until President Trump and his people release stuff that go, here's the documentation that makes this false, then yeah, I tend to believe that there's at least some truth in it. I don't know if all their numbers are right. Um, but man, you ask, what's the next shoe to drop or is there something? It's hard because I think the truest thing the president said in his last election, do you remember the famous quote when he said, uh, obviously this was a big stretch when he said it, but he said, I could shoot somebody on the middle of fifth Avenue and I wouldn't lose any votes. Sometimes it feels that way that the Mm. people who hate him and vote against him are always going to no matter what. And the people who vote for him, the question is, what does this do to kind of that middle ground kind of more quiet person who's still struggling with who to vote for? Uh, I don't know if this is enough to sway one way or the other, because again, um, were you surprised when you heard this? I wasn't really surprised when I heard this. I guess to see numbers was surprising. Uh, but, you know, you you see his supporters doing uh, doing lots of gymnastics to kind of uh, explain this away and continue to support him. And you see the people who are always, you know, kind of beating on him, beating on him with this. And it's a lot more the same. So I, I don't know that this is going to change very much, but I'm sure we're going to get more of these stories before the election. I'm sure yeah. uh, some people are sitting on some stories right now. Did, did you happen to see uh, Babylon B's kind of response to this today? Oh, I, but I'm anxious to hear it. But no, I did not. It has something to do with um, Joe Biden's speech notes leaked or something. And <laughs> you can look it up for yourself. It's very it's very Babylon okay. B. We'll we'll stop there. I'm sure this won't be the last time that we talk about it on the show. Either way, none of those are really a deep dive. But sometimes we like to kick off the show with just sort of what's happening in the world which we know there's a whole lot more going on. Coming up next, though, we'll take a deeper dive into this topic. From the Wall Street Journal, smartphones transformed everything. Now there's more disruption to come. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Frum on this like weirdly cold, yes, kind of rainy. It's like a chicken noodle soup kind of day. I don't... Is that childish of me to admit when it when it gets like this, especially the first time in the season, I'm like, gosh, I want like a fire, which is we don't have a fireplace. So I'm out of luck there. And then <laughs> chicken noodle soup. Like, that's what I want. That's is that weird? I'm like wearing a sweater. It's not weird at all. In fact, it's funny you say that. I had two things about today's weather. Uh, first, uh, I I put shorts on and there's always that day where you go one too many days with shorts. And then you mm-hmm. go outside and you go, oh, no, we've hit that time. That mm-hmm. was my day today. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, you say chicken noodle soup. I was trying to figure out what to do for lunch. And I didn't do this more out of laziness than anything else. But my first thought was I'd like a grilled cheese today. And that was because of the weather as well. It felt like grilled cheese weather to me today. Um, so I get the chicken noodle soup. That works. That works for me. <laughs> We yeah. should have a we should dedicate a whole other segment to we've talked about this before. I own the domain grilledcheeseparty.com. That's how much I like grilled cheeses. We've talked about this, I haven't did we? I not know that. No. I didn't know the domain. No, I didn't I don't think so. Or maybe oh, we have and I yeah. forgot. That's I'm, awesome. I'm investing eight ninety nine per year to have that domain. You better believe it. That's a whole other What are you gonna whole, do with it? Well, it already links to an article I wrote about grilled cheese parties. That's a whole can't believe we haven't <laughs> talked about this. This is such such breaking news right now. We can we'll talk about that, that later. Is- grilledcheeseparty.com oh i will be on that later today <laughs> it's gonna it's gonna really disappoint you let me it's uh, it links to a bigger project i was doing and it's a whole okay we'll, we, yeah we'll talk about it later um that's awesome. out of the wall street journal this is something that i feel like you and i have tackled a number of times smartphones technology we we're talking about uh the social dilemma last week this headline kind of caught my attention it says smartphones transformed everything 
now there's more disruption to come. So they're kind of making the case that smartphones have upended every element of society during the last decade, from dating to dinner parties, travel to mm-hmm. politics. But this is just the beginning. Cue the ominous dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Why don't you yeah. uh, get us into this a little bit? Yeah, and I do need to admit, I told my wife I want to watch The Social Dilemma, but did not watch it this weekend, as we had talked about on Friday, but it's still (laughs) on my mind. Uh, But also, I saw a tweet on Twitter. I almost said on Twitter. On Twitter, uh, (laughs) Beth Moore talked about how much it messed with her that she watched Social Dilemma last week. (laughs) Oh, really? I believe it. I totally believe it. All right, so this article in the Wall Street Journal says, the advent of the smartphone marked the merging of man and machine. These devices might not be embedded uh, into our forearms just yet, but they have so <laughs> seismically changed how we operate and interact as humans over the past decade that we're all effectively cyborgs now. We're each wholly devoted to these tiny, unknowable machines, rarely out of the hand, out of hand, or at the very least, rarely out of reach. IBM's ill-fated Simon Personal Computer, released in 1994 and best known uh, for its appearance in the equally ill-fated Sandra Bullock film, The Net, which I would say is a good movie, was the right. first touchscreen machine to merge phone, email, and PDA. Uh, That's public took, display of affection, I think, right? Yes, it is, I okay. believe. Uh, it took 2007's first-gen iPhone, however, to spark the smartphone's rise from novelty to ubiquity. In the early 2010, handheld devices took a major leap, with global sales doubling from roughly 50 million devices in the first quarter of that year to about 100 million in the fourth quarter. Whoa. Uh, smartphone sales per quarter eventually surged to a peak of more than 400 million units during the final month, few months of 2016. And before getting into that, now they're going to talk about kind of the social media and the the smartphone addictions that we have. But before that, it is wild to think how new of a uh, of a concept smartphones are because they are, like this article says, so much a part of our lives. Like you almost can't imagine not having them for whatever reason, whether it be texting or social media or actually calling somebody. Uh, but, you know, I was trying to describe to one of my kids that like, yeah, you know, when your mom and I got married, like, we had a home phone and they were like, what? And Boring, you just, right? Yeah, you just, you just, you do kind of forget how, uh, how new of a phenomenon the smartphone is right now. Yeah. And I, this probably makes me sound old, but like when I look at 2010, I'm like, that doesn't feel that long ago. Like, right. <laughs> I still remember when having a car made in 2000 felt like a new car. Like that was, a, you know what I mean? That's a, and that's just some of my brain not keeping up, but it is interesting though to even think about, the transition that I went from like a BlackBerry Pearl to my first like Android to an iPhone, even what some of that and people talking about the games are downloading. I'm like, Ugh, what a waste of time. And now, you know, again, once you watch Social Dilemma, I think this will only exacerbate this feeling, Brian. But it's why I feel all the more committed to like proactively deciding things ahead of time, like, you know, trying my best to plug the phone in somewhere in the kitchen rather than in the bedroom and turning off notifications and stuff like that, because I know that there's still all sorts of other things that are forming my behavior without me even thinking about it, which if we, if we put a spiritual spin on it, like, and I, I don't mean to overstate this, but when Paul talks about not being conformed to the patterns of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind, would it be theologically safe to say that one of the patterns of the world is like mm. constant digital accessibility. Like that might be one of the patterns that, and again, not in some big end times type of way. I'm just saying it's forming us, it's shaping us. And if we're not proactively taking steps to kind of break some of those patterns, I don't know. Like it makes sense to me I that an article fair. like this would be written. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's totally fair. It's a good way to put it. He, he, the article goes on to say, now in 2020, the smartphone runs a close second to oxygen as an essential. <laughs> For many, it's the lone way we communicate and share. It can quickly call up any ounce of information discovered in human history, letting us answer why your Labradoodle is shivering via YouTube and end barstool debates about interchangeable Rocky sequels or whether procrastination is really one of the seven deadly sins. It lets us produce art, document revolutions, and let our voices be heard at any instance from anywhere. It can help us find love, seek validation, or pick at insecurity like a scab through an endless hunt for likes. And it goes on to talk about GPS and all this stuff. But it's true. And like you said, you and I have talked about this many times. But I, in many ways, think this is the issue, not just for our generation, but like when I think of my kids' generation and think about like that this will always be who they are. But as they even get older and and as these uh, handheld devices get more complex in what they're able to do, uh, it, it, I do think uh, this is kind of uh, not just the culture they're going to live in, but the issue they're going to need to really wrestle with. Like they're going to if we think we need to be proactive, what's it going to be like for our kids and grandkids uh, in dealing with this sort of technology? I, I do really wonder about that a lot. And this is, again, based on zero research and zero yep. expertise. I do sometimes wonder if people in sort of our age bracket potentially might be more addicted than our children yeah. will be simply because have it before yeah. because we didn't have it. And so, like, you know, I, it was really becoming a thing in my 20s, really, when I was at like the height of thinking about like career and trajectory and all that and connecting with people that had moved away that I, you know, had come to, you know, know and love in college. So it feels like a lot of the timing was perfect for me to become really attached to it. I, I just wonder, I have no idea, but if like kids will almost be less intrigued by it. Cause they're like, nah, it's not, it's not as much as a, of a novelty anymore. They're like, well, they're just surrounded by it. And again, I could be way off on that. You know, again, watching the social dilemma, you hear from some of these experts that are like, Oh yeah, we, our kids get like 15 minutes of screen time per day. And here's, mm -hmm. and here's why we limit that. Uh, and every time I hear someone, an expert in that field, offer those kind of parameters. I, I always think, what do you know that the rest of us don't know? Like exactly. that to me is concerning, but my kids are in different ages. I, I, is this something that you guys are pretty regularly talking about in your house? Uh, it's, it's funny you say that because uh, I was just talking to my wife this weekend. We were just talking about the need to have that conversation again with our kids. Cause you do, you mm. see it become their default and right. not like for bad reasons, not doing bad things. You just see uh, like I'll look up uh, and all of a sudden realize, wow, we're all in the same room, but we're all on a phone right now, or we'll right. all this, and, and it becomes the default. And so I was, I think it's the re it's the um, regularity with which this conversation has to happen that I struggle with. Like it's one thing to be like, all right, guys, let's talk about our phone use and this and that, and then like anything, it kind of you know trickles away, and you're like, oh, we need to have that conversation again and again and again. That's what makes parenting difficult. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's certainly a conversation we need to be having with our kids and with our spouses and in our churches. I think this is an issue for everybody we need to be talking about. Yeah, and probably an ongoing one, which is part of what makes yes. it so tricky in general. Coming up next, two reasons bully pastors rise up in the church. That's some thoughts from Paul David Tripp coming up next here in The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. On a beautiful National Strawberry Cream Pie Day, 
Oh yes. <laughs> what do you mean? Oh yes. Is that like I, a is that a fan favorite? That I do like a strawberry cream pie. I'm going to affirm that holiday. I would like to celebrate that tonight. <laughs> I don't know that I've ever had one. Is that weird to say? Strawberry cream weird. pie day. Yeah, I don't yeah. honestly. I don't know that I ever have, but uh, I'll make it a mission. As soon as Brian watches Social Dilemma, I'll get a strawberry cream pie. Um, <laughs> so here's here's a clip. It's it's a little under four minutes. But it's from Paul David Tripp. He's a pastor, a writer, a speaker that I've I've followed for a long time. I, I think that yeah. he's just got some great insights. He's done a lot of work specifically on parenting that I think is great. But uh, a video that I saw a bunch of people sharing was titled this, Two Reasons Bully Pastors Rise Up in the Church. And I think this is important not just for pastors and not even just for Christians, but it's a topic, unfortunately, Brian, that you and I have talked about a lot since we started the show, this idea right. of bully pastors and what's behind that and why do we keep repeating this? So I wanted to share the whole clip just because I thought there was some incredible insight. And then with whatever time we have left, we'll react. I think there are two things that are at the heart of the leadership crisis in the church. I think the first one is we've backed away from a biblical definition of a leader. Humble, gentle, kind, faithful loving, servant. The kind of character qualities that are in the Timothy passage when it talks about the qualification for elder, the kind of character qualities that are in the fruit of the Spirit. We've backed away from those. And our definition of of a leader is strong personality, uh, quick-witted, forceful, domineering, uh, able to win the day in a discussion or an argument, uh, can cast vision and collect people. Uh, I'm going to say this. No wonder we've produced a culture of ministry bullies who mistreat people, who look at staff not as a servant, but sees those people as just tools for his success. Leaders who look at a congregation not as disciples that need his care, sheep that need a shepherd, uh, loved ones who need nurturing and, and love and comfort, but as consumers. And success is collecting as many consumers as you can. We've backed away from a biblical definition of a leader, and we are paying the price for this new definition. There's a second thing. We have diminished, devalued the importance of strong watchful, comforting, confronting leadership community around a leader. We have diminished the importance that every leader needs pastoring. Every leader needs care. Every leader needs watchful eyes. Every leader needs at points to be rebu- rebuked. Every leader needs to be protected. 
Every leader needs strong community in his life. Now, now think about this. If you've forsaken the biblical definition of a leader for this brash definition, and you've diminished the value of a leadership community, no wonder we're in the trouble we're in. I'm shocked that the trouble isn't greater because you cannot walk away from God's norms and be okay. Listen, we don't need a new model of leadership. We have one. It's right in the pages of the New Testament. So as long as we're changing the leadership definition and we're devaluing the importance of community, this crisis will continue. All right, Brian. So we've listened to this separately. And now again, here on the show, what, what did you think of what he had to say there? I love Paul David Tripp. I think he's one of these teachers who, uh, again, I don't know him. I don't go to his church. I've read his books. Like you said, his parenting book is, is fabulous. Uh, but, but I think he kind of tries to live out some of what he talks about here from what I can tell. Uh, and that, uh, that idea uh, that we, as a kind of big C church culture, have kind of followed the lead of culture. We've backed away from this biblical definition of leader, humble, gentle, fruit of the spirit, and, and that we know it, like like we we read books on this or we see things, but ultimately we, we go for a kind of more of a domineering, kind of a type A personality, uh, and and that that the church has kind of backed away. You know, he even says there, he's like, we don't need a new leadership uh, paradigm, I think he said. Like, we have mm-hmm. one in the pages of scripture. and. Uh, the the difficult thing is for church leadership and churches in general to go, okay, this is what we're going to try to, we're, we're going to go for this, right? We're actually going to try to raise up, uh, have a head leader and raise up other leaders who are humble and gentle and this and that, because I just don't think it's what people expect, but I couldn't agree more with this. Like uh, G, uh, throughout the Bible, we see these, these definitions of leadership, you know, that Paul gives in Titus and in other places. And and it looks very different. Like you said, we've been talking about this since day one. In fact, the very first segment you and I did of our very first show had to do with this with this topic. That's right. And uh, it's amazing that churches, we, we all keep dealing with this because I think we more buy into what's the charismatic leader, what's going to draw people in this and that as opposed well, that, to this idea of the shepherd. And char- me, charisma, there's nothing wrong with it. Right. Charisma. That's what I want to ask you about, though, because charisma yeah. and bullying don't always go Agreed. hand in hand. In fact, I don't even know that they they often do. Maybe they do. That's part of what I, I'm I'm curious can kind of drive in deeper into. And we don't have time in this segment, but like I imagine what the counter argument is. I've certainly heard people dance around the fact like, yeah, but like the culture in which Paul was writing is a different culture than now. We require a different kind of leader with a different set of skills. So that's how we kind of justify it. Or uh, what's another like often your people like, yeah, we need to be loving, but we need to speak the truth in love. And that's often kind of like a subtle excuse for just being mean. Like being, being <laughs> yeah, terrible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've outright heard people say, yeah, if you care for people too much, though, you're just not going to be a good pastor or you're mm-hmm. not. You're that's going to hinder your capacity to lead well, like which I guess there's a part of my brain that gets that like, oh, yeah, if you can't ever make hard, decisive, objective decisions because you're like two in the weeds on stuff, I could see that being problematic. But it feels like what well, kind of like what you were saying, we've like so denigrated characteristics like gentleness, compassion, you know, like I remember Deb Hurst tweeting, you know, years ago, she said, gentleness 
is a fruit of the spirit, not a feminine quality. And we've somehow like forgotten that. And I, you know, I, we got like 30 seconds left, but like, do you think, do you think that's somewhat of a big church, small church thing? Or is that just like a, like a human thing? I think it's a human thing because yeah. like you said, you and I've talked before that we know of small churches that are run by bullies who, yeah, uh, you know, they're the solo pastor. We're going to go do this. And and so I, like you said, charisma is not a bad thing, but I, but I do think that, that churches need to take a hard look at what the Bible talks about. Like you said, what are the fruits of the spirit and what are, uh, what, what is a leader? What does humility in a leader look like? What is yeah. the ways of Jesus of putting others before yourself? And, and that those are the leaders we need to be holding up, but it's so countercultural and so backwards. And quite frankly, it's so counterculture to a lot of the church cultures right now. Right. That it's even hard to conceptualize. Yeah. I, I have to tell you off air what uh, a worship pastor once told me about the kind of person you need to be to quote, make it in this industry. Oh, I'm I ready. thought, Oh boy. Yeah. That's going to be a, during the commercial break kind of a conversation. Cause it was heartbreaking. Either way, this is on the Facebook page, like everything. And we would love to know what you think coming up next, an open letter to Sean Foyt from Sierra white about some of the concerts that he's been holding. That's coming up next here on the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Everyone, welcome back to the Common Good on this National Good Neighbor Day, on this rainy drink beer day, strawberry cream pie day, and National North Carolina Day. Why does the whole nation have to celebrate North Carolina? I don't understand that. I don't either. I do love North Carolina, though, so we'll, we can celebrate that. I do, too. I'm not going to lie. I'm with you on that. What I is your favorite North part? Carolina. Why Why is North Carolina so likable? Uh, I grew up... For many years in a row, we would always end summer with another family uh, in a house at the Outer Banks, at the, at the Outer Banks of North Carolina. And it is like my happy place now. My, me and my wife and my family and my parents went there about five years ago again. Uh, but like, you know, you've got these childhood memories. It's the ocean. So for me, it's yeah. the Outer Banks. It's the beach in North Carolina. I'm that's, I, that's, you, that's the bougiest you've ever sounded to me, Brian. Just that. <laughs> oh, every summer, my family and I would vacation in the... Uh, to the cape. <laughs> uh, uh, to the cape. Oh, gosh. I'm assuming you were wearing stark white shorts and penny loafers <laughs> out on out on the sailboat. Anyway, no <laughs> offense to anyone who does that. Maybe people are. <laughs> hey, I'm wearing white shorts hey. right now. That's, that's I'm on the cape as we speak. Yeah. <laughs> listening to the common good. Well, I'll take it. That'd be fun. Uh, have I mentioned the particulars? I have not. You're on Facebook, the common good radio show. 1160hope.com slash the common good. And wherever it is, you get podcasts. We've been talking about Sean Fucht. Fucht? Fucht? What is? How do you say it? Have we figured that out yet? I don't uh, know. But you and I the other day went with Foyt. So I feel like we should just stick with Foyt. F-E-U-C-H-T for anyone who's wondering. But we how, went with Foyt. How are we in radio and neither of us have done 12 seconds of research to figure out how to <laughs> I'm sure somebody like more prepared than we have has already. Either way. You, you want to I'll give him the brief overview. He's been traveling the country and he's been hosting yeah. sort of these, uh, quote unquote, like impromptu worship gatherings in cities, mainly cities in particular. They seem strategically aligned with like uh, experiencing some kind of violence or some kind of grief or some kind of that's not all of them, but it feels like the vast majority of them. Is that fair? Oh, totally fair. He's he's uh, from Bethel out in California, and it's just fair to say that he is one of the very most outspoken uh, kind of inner circle of the president on his evangelical circle. I think that's all part of who he is. But yeah, he's been traveling around to a lot of places uh, running these worship concerts. And as you said, a lot of them are the ones where there have been uh, a lot of unrest, Chicago being one of them. That's uh, right. That's I right. I think within the last month or so. 
Well, uh, we know that there's a lot of opinions. Some people are super excited and they're championing. Other people, for a, you know, an endless list of reasons, have been really opposed to him. I found this open letter from a woman named Sierra White that I th- I thought had some interesting perspectives. And again, just to say it out loud, Brian and I don't agree with everything that we read or share on the show, but we try to you know encourage to stir some kind of discussion. So I'm going to let Brian read the whole letter and then we'll respond with whatever time we have. Yep. It says this, dear Sean, I am not one to publicly call people out by name on social media, but I feel like I need to at least try and say something. I'm writing this post because I'm genuinely angry and you don't seem to listen to anyone with an opposing view. So I'm hoping that somehow my words will find you. I want to share by share. I want to start by sharing the definition of the word revival, which is this an improvement in the condition or strength of something. A couple months ago, she writes, George Floyd was murdered by police officers. There was an uprising of people led by the black community who took to the streets in protest. Anger, fear, sadness, and desperation filling every chant for justice and every footstep taken, every sign held, every fist lifted from the black community. Cries of justice went up from our voices online at protests and in petitions. The black community pleaded with us to finally listen, open our eyes, and fight for the justice alongside them as they led the way. Yes, Riots and looting happened, but that also happened when certain teams won the Super Bowl. So, yeah, she writes, riots and looting were a small minority, and most of them were started by groups going in to escalate things and make the protesters look less peaceful. Shortly after, you showed up at the center of this in Minneapolis with your stages, your PA system, your band full of white musicians, and what you are marketing as, quote, revival. You went so far as to name your events from riots to revival as though these protests crying out for justice were simply a distraction, a thing to be ignored because Jesus. You showed up and you took over. You blasted your songs, you centered yourself in your concert, and then you left. And for what? A couple hours of fame and emotional hype at the expense of the greater black community? Instead of showing up in humility and standing alongside the ones crying out for justice, pleading to be heard, you centered your show and then you left claiming that revival had happened. But what if you're wrong? What if these, quote, riots are revival? Stay with me here. I'm not saying violence and looting are ever a good idea or something I personally approve of. But what if revival isn't music and worship from church people? What if it's cries for change from the oppressed finally being heard and change actually happening? What if it's following the advice in the Bible and loving justice and mercy? What if it's following Jesus's words about loving our neighbor as we love ourselves? What if it's participating in protests, pleading for justice, for wrongfully killed black men and women at the hands of the police? What if revival isn't music, hyped up emotions, or loud music with famous musicians and singers? What if the spirit of God is moving through these protests to bring justice and equality uh, to God's children in black skin? What if revival is less about songs and concerts and more about justice and caring for humanity and repentance of sins towards the oppressed? What if revival is about standing alongside our black and brown neighbors, family members, and friends and advocating for their equality, their safety, and their voices to be heard? What if instead of showing up to play another concert, you brought black protesters onto your stage and gave them space to speak and educate your audience and create space for listening and repentance? What if revival is repentance? What if revival is sorrow and grief at the treatment of our black and brown brothers and sisters? What if revival is solidarity? with those uh, with black and brown skin and celebrity Christians using their platforms to elevate voices? What if revival isn't about you, but about the greater picture of justice, mercy, and humility? I honestly doubt you will see this, but I can hope. 
I believe you've been given a platform and a pur- for a purpose, and you could really be using it to bring justice and hope to the oppressed and marginalized rather than hosting another, quote, worship service and boasting of, quote, revival on social media. We need revival, but we don't need more concerts and worship services. We need equality and Jesus. We need you to stop hosting massive events and creating opportunities for COVID-19 to spread to thousands. We need you to stop showing up to areas where black communities are protesting and setting up your stage and drowning out their cries and pleas for justice. We need you to take some time to listen to black and brown people and do anti-racism work so you can do good for the black community. A night of music isn't needed. Changing hearts justice for black people like Breonna Taylor and Elijah McLean and advocating for racial equality is what is needed. This is holy work. This is kingdom work. This is revival. Uh, I pray that God blesses you and keeps you and makes their face uh, shine upon you. Signed, Sierra White. So what do you what do you think? That is that is a long and much shared post from her. What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, there, there's a lot there, man. I had a number of people share this with me specifically asking, would we talk about this on the show and realizing we only have you know a minute or so left. But I, I, <laughs> yeah. what, what she said about you know, what if repentance is revival? What I find so interesting about that phrase, because one, I think she's right, not to mention, you know, often what the prophets in the Old Testament were trying to raise attention to was injustice, the exploitation of the poor and the marginalized. And so there was often this like correlation between revival and the people in power recognizing that often, you know, repentance being the call, the metanoia, the turning around, doing something different. What I find interesting is that I think I think both sides of both Sierra and Sean would say, well, repentance is happening. You know, he's having people praying and surrendering their life to Jesus at these events. And the kind of repentance that she's talking about is from a different perspective. Uh, It, it almost makes me wonder like, could the, could both coincide kind of what she proposed? What if you still came, but you use your celebrity to platform black and brown voices from this community to speak out, to speak out, you know, what if, what if it was a bull fan? What if it wasn't, you know, I think it feels like, you know, from her perspective, you, you've kind of taken attention away from what people were doing here to to mourn and to grieve. And I don't know, I, I wanted to give you a chance too to weigh in because I, I know that it's a really uh, highly charged issue. But at the very least, I right. thought she I thought she raised some interesting points. I totally agree with you. And I think you framed it well. Uh, like, I, I would like to presume best interest here from Sean Foyt and go, yeah, what he's doing is good, right? It's it's giving people hope. Hopefully it's pointing people to Jesus. And what she's saying is true, that the marks of revival throughout scripture uh, is going to be, uh, it's going to be the church and the Christ follower having a revival of seeing things the way Jesus does, right? Taking right. on his character, his concerns, his conduct. And what we see in Jesus is a, uh, is is a care for the oppressed, is a reaching down for the marginalized to raise them up. And that that is the true, that is a huge sign of revival. Revival is not yeah. just a sign of people gathering and singing, but those are, like you said, that's not a bad thing. This isn't a black and white, uh, and I don't mean that racially, I mean that like one's good and one's bad. Um, but But like, I think you're right that when we talk about revival, and we use that word, I think what the true signs of revival are going to be is increasing Christ-like desires mm. and behaviors. Uh, and I think that's what she's trying to raise here. And I think she does it really well. That's a good word, Pastor. And with that, the first hour is in the books. But coming up in the second hour, we're going to talk about this prayer and worship event that happened in Washington. And then for the second half of the hour, we're going to talk about mental health and the church. You're listening to The Common.
Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about the prayer and worship event that happened in Washington, D.C. last weekend, and then we're going to talk about mental health in the church. You're listening to The Common Good. Everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is still Ian Simpkins. His name is still Brian Fromm, and we are so excited that you are here joining us. If you're live on the radio, we're here every weekday from 4 to 6 p.m., but if you're a podcasting type, then you are in luck because we're on literally every podcast platform you can imagine. If you wouldn't mind, subscribing, rating, and reviewing helps us out a whole ton. It's actually particularly important because today is National Good Neighbor Day, and what could be more neighborly than subscribing, rating, and reviewing to our podcast. I can think of a few things more neighborly than that. Isn't that right, Brian? Absolutely. That is as neighborly <laughs> a thing. And then when Halloween comes around, that's what you should give out to the kids for trick-or-treating, just like a card that says, hey, uh, subscribe, rate, and review. Have you seen that guy that created that like extra long like candy tube from his porch down to the front <laughs> sidewalk <laughs> no. so that like he could like, yeah, it was basically like a, like a water slide for candy. That's to, awesome. Like, Give kids candy and their social distance trick-or-treating. Is that happening this year? Are you guys trick-or-treating? I don't know what the rules are, to be honest with you. Like, I would let my kids, but I've heard – I've I, oh, I should know this as a parent, shouldn't I? All these people are yelling at their at their radios right now going, you're not allowed to. <laughs> uh, I actually don't know. I don't know. I know my kids are doing things with their friends, but I don't know if it involves trick-or-treating. It certainly involves getting dressed up and doing stuff, but I don't know if it involves trick-or-treating this year. It's a great question. One of the snarky memes that I saw was like a picture of someone getting fast food from a drive through window. And it said, if adults can do this, and then it had a picture of kids trick-or-treating. It was like, then kids can do this. And I was like, no. It's not a terrible point. Although I will say every fast food place I've been to, they have the like sneeze guard thing. There's like a very limited. Yeah. It's that's yeah. a little different than like a full door entrance. Now, either that's not that's not what this segment's about at all. But we would love to know: Are you guys trick or treating? Where do you where do you land on that debate? Maybe we'll uh, raise that question over the Facebook page. I don't know if you saw any of this. It was a long event, but there was a a prayer and worship event that happened over the weekend called the Return. Before we get into it, did you see any of it? I did. In fact, the first I heard of it was somebody randomly on my Facebook feed who I grew up with. Uh, was there and I was like, what is this thing? And then I went and checked oh. it out and found it. See, that was actually the first I saw of it. Okay. So I don't have like a particular angle on this one. Usually when we choose articles or stories or topics, you or I or both of us sometimes have like a particular angle that we're, we're trying to get at or a question we want to raise. I don't actually have that for this. I just love to know based on what you did see or what you've read since then, what's kind of your general takeaway from it? I, I am pro these things. So I, again, I tend to tell you, I presume best intentions and, um, and say, so for me, a day of people gathering in our nation's capital to, uh, to worship and to pray for our country and our leaders, uh, is a good thing. So I, I want to start there. I want to say, uh, I think this is a positive thing. Uh, with that said, uh, there were some things I saw that worried me. You know, there it, it had some feels of a political rally uh, towards, mm-hmm. especially towards one end of the political spectrum uh, that, again, you and I talk about our uneasiness with um, especially evangelicalism being tied in with specific political parties. And even though the leaders of this, Franklin Graham at the forefront, saying that's this is not political at all. Some of the speakers and some of the rhetoric that I saw certainly had a political undertone to it, as opposed to let's just pray for our country. Let's pray for leaders on both sides of the aisle. 
let's call. And there were probably a lot of people there to do that. Um, but I, I was a little uncomfortable with uh, with the political aspect of it. But I do want to champion and say, hey, anytime large amounts of Christians are gathering to pray and ask God's blessing and repent and pray for our leaders, I want to ch- I want to champion that. I want to cheer that on. Uh, but I would say nothing is um, nothing is altogether pure. Right. And so uh, I, I would say some of that. Uh, made me uncomfortable. So a little bit of, of both and for me, I would say. How about you? Well, let me, I want to ask you about something that you just said because you did say, uh, okay, here's the part that I struggle with, which, you know, I can certainly understand some of that. You said the part that I do want to champion though is anytime large amounts of Christians gather together to pray. Uh, that statement is almost always universally championed except in the midst of a pandemic. I'm, I'm curious. Oh, I never thought of that. <laughs> That's a good point. We're in the midst of a pandemic, aren't we? <laughs> right. That was, that was some of what, I mean, again, it's Twitter. So take it with a grain of salt. I but gotcha. I gotcha. Did any of that? Well, you did kind of just, I mean, I appreciate confess on air. Like, Oh, I didn't even think about that. It Looking didn't. back now. I mean, a lot of the photos it's, there are people jam packed again. They're outside, but yep. very few masks, very few. I mean, no, no one seems socially distanced. Does 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 that color any of your uh, perspective of the event? <laughs> Clearly, it didn't. <laughs> um, yeah, that's true. You know, I I tend to be okay with things being outside, and uh, but yeah, your point well taken. If you see the picture, there's lots of people, uh, and you know what? If you're going to uh, if you're going to be one of those people who rails against the protests going on and you got to be you got to you can't have one without the other here. And so hmm. um, I, I would say there. Um, yeah, I, I, that's really funny that I hadn't even thought of that. I didn't even look at the picture and go, "Ooh, what about COVID? <laughs> if we've been in this this long that that's where I'm at now, I don't know. Uh, but, yeah, no, that's a super valid point. I didn't see uh, if there are a lot of people with masks or not, but uh, that does raise especially for a group of Christ followers, uh, is that is that the most loving thing for our neighbors we could do? I guess you could certainly argue it's not. But uh, as you could tell, I did not think of that right off the bat. <laughs> Which is, I mean, maybe that's true for a lot of people, you know, maybe yeah. a lot. I mean, that's again, I, I want to affirm some of what you said earlier, because I do think and that's honestly a lot of like the article that I or the post I made that I caught a lot of heat for. Like, hey, at the very least, we should be praying for our leaders. Like, I thought that yeah. would be. A unifying statement. It was not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see this post of yours. I learned that. No, it's the photos, the side by side photos. Yes, of, yeah, uh, I did see that. Trump one, and yes. Biden with their childhood photos. But yes, uh, yes. again, I want to champion people, right? Praying for our nation. I uh, this this might sound awful, but here we go. Um, I wish I saw prayers for God's kingdom come. As much as, if not more than, prayers for our own nation, like that, to me. And again, I don't mean to—I don't mean at all to say we shouldn't, because we absolutely should. Uh, but it seems like if we take Jesus seriously and the things we're we're supposed to be praying for, His kingdom come and His will be done is is a high priority that I think we often miss in sort of our pursuit of like self preservation or me and mine. And a lot of those come from, I think, good places. You know, one of the protect my family or our jobs or our nation or whatever. But yeah, I, like you were saying, sometimes it does. And this goes to both sides. It can be overly politicized, which I think is uh, problematic at 
the very least, you know, yeah. to sort of you to to leverage prayer and worship as something to further an agenda, which we all do on our own individually. So I'm not saying this is something only that massive events are guilty of. Like we do this individually all the time. But uh, yeah, I just thought it was it was interesting, and I and I got to watch a lot of it live, and then I went back and watched a lot of it, and you had you know <laughs> you were talking about Michael W. Smith yes, and sir. sort of like the who's who that was surrounding him, and some of the kind of interesting visual dynamics that that brought. But either either way, I mean, probably don't have to say it. Hopefully, I don't. But Brian and I are very pro prayer, and, <laughs> yes, uh, pro people <laughs> praying either socially distanced and responsibly and all that kind of stuff, but. Well, I'd love to know what people think. I know this was a pretty controversial thing for a lot of people. What did you think of the event itself, the specifics, uh, the specifics of the event, or the uh, the stuff that you saw? I'd be, I'd just be curious to know what people think of that in general because it feels like everything right now is so highly charged, and you can do all of that over on the Facebook page. We would love to hear from you. You're listening to the Common Good on AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, and we have on the phone all the way from Dallas, Dr. Robert Jeffers. Welcome to the show, sir. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Would you just take a moment and uh, introduce yourself to our audience? Well, I'm Robert Jeffers, pastor of the First Baptist Church in Dallas and Bible teacher on Pathway to Victory, the church on your station every Monday through Friday. Absolutely. And Dr. Jeffers, I've had the pleasure of doing the reads over the last couple of weeks about this uh, Bible prophecy tour you're going to be leading, I believe, in March to Israel. I had a chance in college to uh, spend a summer in Israel, and it was certainly a life changing experience. I'm wondering what can people expect from this trip? And also, why do you love to go back to Israel? Why do you find that important in your own life? Well, the dates are March 2nd through 12th, and right now on Pathway to Victory, our radio program on your station, we're actually studying the book of Revelation uh, verse by verse in a study I call Final Conquest. And, you know, in this unstable world in which we're living, I mean, the real hope of believers is the return of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting, the book of Revelation is the only book of the Bible for which there's a special blessing attached to those who read it and understand it. And I thought it's interesting this fall we're studying about about the end times, but this spring uh, people have an opportunity to travel with us and see the actual geographical locations where many of these events are going to unfold. You know, there's something about standing over the plain of Megiddo where the great final world battle of Armageddon will take place. That's a very eye-opening experience. Uh, we'll st- stand on the Mount of Olives, the place where Jesus not only ascended into heaven, but the very spot where he is going to return to earth one day. And we'll be talking about the second coming of Christ as we uh, sit there on the Mount of Olives, just like Jesus did with his disciples 2,000 years ago. And then I think one of the things I enjoy the most, I never get tired of it, is having our final night, a communion service in front of the empty tomb. You know, to be able to walk in there and see that it really is true. He is not there. He's been risen from the dead. I mean, I've been there a dozen times, but I learn something new every time I go back to Israel. I I think a lot of people, even Christians, in their minds kind of think about these events they read in the Bible as almost mythological events. But when you go and see these actual places 
when you sail on the Sea of Galilee and imagine what it must have been like for those disciples when Jesus uh, calmed the storm. I mean, it, it makes the Bible come alive in your life like it never has before. So I hope people will consider uh, going with us March 2nd through 12th, and I think you can explain to them a way they can register for the possibility of a free trip. Mm-hmm. Dr. Jeffress, you mentioned that you're in a series in Revelation right now, and I, I can think of fewer books of the Bible that are more controversial, and everyone you know, seems to have different opinions about what's actually happening in the book of Revelation, what that means for us, for Christians today. Could you just give us a bit of your perspective on, on what's actually going on in that book? You know, so many people think that you have to have a, a degree in theology to understand the book of Revelation. And just like you said, it's either too controversial or it's too complicated. But if that's the case, then why did uh, God attach a special blessing to everyone who reads and obeys the words in the book? I mean, God meant for us to understand this book, and it's really not that difficult if you read it uh, like God intended, and especially if you uh, tune into our broadcast and uh, uh, listen to the explanation that goes along with these verses. And really, you know, the reason God gave us uh, this uh, glimpse into the end-time events was not to satisfy our curiosity, but to increase our level of obedience. God gave this revelation to John when he was being persecuted and Christians were being persecuted. He was uh, gave it this revelation to encourage the first century Christians to remain faithful in their obedience to Christ in an uncertain world. And, you know, as we face a global pandemic, as we continue to hear of wars and rumors of wars, uh, as uh, many Christians around the world are being persecuted for their beliefs, it's a good time for us to be encouraged. And there's nothing more encouraging by the assurance that although this world is a difficult place to live in right now, this world is not what God intended it to be, and it's not what it will ultimately be. And this promise of a new heaven and a new earth when Christ returns is really what keeps us going as Christians. That's good. Robert, uh, Dr. Jeffers, I'm curious, uh, as a pastor, uh, you just touched on how how difficult these days are right now, how much of a struggle with a global pandemic and other things. As a pastor, as people come to you and they go, where do you find hope? Where can I find encouragement? How do you answer that question, maybe for people in your church or people on your radio show that you talk to? Well, I answer it just like I said, that uh, we don't deny the reality of evil in the world. Uh, This was never God's plan for how it should have been. Uh, This world was corrupted by Adam and Eve and all who followed after them. But I think what we go through now, just what's our appetite? You know, Paul said, for I consider the present suffering of this world uh, uh, nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory that awaits us. Uh, He calls this world a momentary temporary affliction. And, you know, when you think about Paul saying that, I mean, he was beaten uh, multiple times within an inch of his life. He was imprisoned. He was ultimately beheaded for his faith in Christ. And he said, yet all of that is momentary and light compared to what awaits us in heaven one day. You know, I think it was Philip Yancey who said one time, when compared to the glories of heaven, the worst suffering on this earth will be viewed as nothing more than a one-night stay in an inconvenient motel. And I think that's a great way of seeing it. And I think that's what the study of Revelation reminds us. That's helpful. I'm curious, what, what would you say to people who are feeling tumultuous and divided right now? We know this as we head toward an election and there's Christians on multiple sides of every argument and every debate. And I know a lot of people in our church are, you know, are worried that we're headed to a, a more divided state than the church has seen in recent history. What, what are some words of maybe 
unity or encouragement you'd offer to somebody who's feeling like, gosh, I don't even know which way is up right now? Well, you know, the most patriotic thing we can do for the nation we love is to pray for the nation we love. And right now in our ministry, Pathway to Victory, we're encouraging people to go to a brand new website we set up called prayingforamerica.com. And it's praying for the number four, america.com. And uh, if you sign up free of charge on that website, I will send you a fresh prayer every day to pray for America to pray for our leaders, to pray for our healthcare workers, to pray for our law enforcement officials. Instead of lamenting the state of our country, let's pray for the country we love. And I think it'd be a very positive thing for people to do who really feel concerned about our country. You know, the Bible says in Philippians 4, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. And uh, the greatest antidote I know to worry is to pray. Another voice you're hearing is Pastor Robert Jeffers, pastor of the First Baptist Church in Dallas and host of Pathway to Victory, which airs weekdays right here at AM 1160 from 830 to 9 a.m. every weekday. Pastor Jeffers, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Well, thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Brian, I've been telling you that uh, the topic of mental illness is something that I, I've been passionate about for a long time, but we're in a series right now at our church called Mind Matters, where we're specifically taking four weeks to talk about mental illness, and we're doing it a bit different than we normally would. So typically, it's like a 25-minute sermon, which you know, even in a digital reality might be too long, to be honest. Like We're thinking through maybe revisiting some of that, but instead of a 25-minute message on mental illness, it's more like a 12-minute message, and then tucked in the middle is a conversation with a mental health professional oh, wow. and a story from someone in our church who has grappled with that specific issue. So week one was about anxiety. Uh, last weekend was about depression. I just went in and filmed our sermon uh, this morning, and this weekend we're talking about suicidal thoughts, which was like incredibly heavy. It was a hard message to like write and prepare for. But we've already recorded the conversations with the mental health professionals and the testimony. And it's, oh, man, if I if I could just encourage you to sometime this weekend, uh, check it out, because I, I just think it's really important. But I, mm-hmm. I, I want to spend the next two segments actually talking about mental illness specifically, especially since, you know, September is uh, Suicide Prevention Month. And I thought, let's let's dedicate some real estate to actually talk about this. And Christianity Today, just a few days ago, uh, they wrote an article called uh, Mental Illness and the Medical Theodicy Trap. Why do we feel such a palpable sense of spiritual relief when the problem is with the body rather than the mind? I've done a lot of talking, Brian, so why don't you get us into it? Yeah, let me read this. Interesting, I think it was Ed Stetzer tweeted this week about uh, this weekend. Was it Stetzer? Somebody I saw, I think it was Ed, uh, about I just heard about another uh, another pastor who took his life be praying for that family. Like, oh my gosh! And so this is oh, I saw that I saw incre- that increasingly uh, not increased. Maybe it's just more known now, but it's just such an important topic uh, for the church to be wrestling with. So I'm, I'm I'm impressed and glad that you guys are doing that at your church. Could not have been an easy sermon to have to have oh, to do. Man. But no. let me read what we have at Christianity Today here. It says five years ago I received a telephone call from a friend. She told me that one of our mutual friends had taken his own life. No one knew why. Uh, Brian, which was his name, was a successful healthcare professional with a wife, a family, and an apparently very bright future. Many of us had not seen any indications that something was wrong, although those in close contact with him knew there were problems. 
He just got up one morning and was never seen alive again. Everyone was devastated. What do you do with such news? One of the most painful human experiences must be to say goodbye to a loved one in the morning and then never see that person alive again. I was asked to do the sermon at the celebration of Brian's life. I preached on the Psalms of Lament and the unending, unfailing love of God. I tried to help people see that the joy that God promises includes suffering and that the Psalms of Lament offer faithful language to express our hurt, our brokenness, anger, and disappointment at what my friend had done and what God had seemingly not done, save Hmm. him. Hmm. Wow. Says Brian was a Christian. He was a lover of Jesus, as were his family and many of his friends. And yet, despite the profound consolation of the gospel for some, the first response to his death was not comfort, but fear. In spite of the in spite of the Apostle Paul's firm assurance that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, present future powers, height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 8, 38 and 39. They were afraid of Brian's eternal future. I guess that is the problem with hypercognitive theologies that assume that our eternal futures lie in our own hands rather than in the hands of a loving God. If it is the case that neither death nor life can separate us from God's love, then we need not fear death. Even by suicide, we simply need to trust God's amazing grace. Uh, There is a difficult tension between recognizing God does not abandon those who end their lives and the imperative that such actions are not God's desires for human beings. As Hmm. Duke Divinity School theologian William Kinghorn once uh, reminded me, two affirmations are indispensable for a Christian approach to suicide. One, suicide is a tragedy and a loss and never to be encouraged or seen by Christians as a positive good. And number two, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in, uh, from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our mm. Lord. Let me pause there. Those two affirmations are uh, really important and they can almost seem at odds with one another. Uh, what are your thoughts? You've been studying, you've been, you've dealt with this, you know, in ministry and all sorts of different ways. Yeah. This idea that people were scared for the uh, eternal future of the one who committed suicide and that that's a real wrestle. Have, have you seen this in your experience or in your reading? I have. And, and one of the things that I said in the message too, is that I'm so tired of the lie that if you struggle in this area, you're somehow not spiritual enough. Yeah. Like I'm so tired of that. Like, Oh, you, you just need to pray harder, have more faith, you know, like no one anywhere would feel any shame for having to go to the hospital for a broken leg. And yet there's all this shame and stigma about mental illness and chemical imbalances. And it's like, in my opinion, and I don't think this is a controversial take, the church should be the safest place for us to, to face our challenges, to be honest about our struggles. And yet, yeah. unfortunately, and it's probably because of, in some circles, a very pervasive theology that's like the unforgivable sin or that like, you know, God's disappointed in you, you know, that you're even having these struggles. There's just, there's so much there that I think, like I, I shared some, t- some statistics in the talk. And one of them that I found so staggering was that 4% of people who lost a loved one to suicide said that church leaders in their church knew about their loved one's struggle beforehand. 4%. And I think, okay, if that's not an indication that there's still like some level of shame or secrecy, not even just for the person, but for like the family that's close to it, the people that are most, you know, closest to the struggle to me, that's a much bigger. So, you know, part of what I was trying to get at in the talk was like, we only have a few minutes together and we're not gonna be able to fix all of this, but we can start somewhere, you know, and uh, that's why I think this this conversation is really important. And in the next segment, we'll talk about some some ways that we can you know better take care of ourselves in the midst of all of this. But 
Yeah, I, I think the way he outlines, I'm glad you read them because I think th- those two imperatives are, are they seem super simple, but they're really important to hold intention that suicide is a yeah. tragedy and that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Those yeah. are both true. And when we highlight one versus the other, I, I think that's maybe sometimes where we get into more trouble. Yeah. And this article is really, I think, important about uh, how kind of what you just touched on that, that we want everything. It makes us feel better if it's the issues with our body and physical. So he's going to go on to tell the story that after this, after his friend Brian committed suicide, that they found that there was something in the autopsy wrong with his pituitary gland. And that made everybody mm-hmm. feel better because, mm-hmm. oh, it was his body that was broken. It wasn't his mind. And he, and that's what this article is about. And uh, let me just read that. This is written by John Switton, a professor of theology and pastoral care at University of Aberdeen in Scotland. Uh, and he's also the founding director of the Center for Spirituality, Health and Disability. He writes this at the end. He says, uh, by understanding the nature and purpose of joy, we can understand depression in a different way. And that will give us a way to talk about depression uh, and parenthetically and to remain silent. That is both liberating and I hope healing. Understanding Mm -hmm. depression through the lens of Christian joy can help us understand depression more thickly and respond more faithfully. And I think that's Mm -hmm. such a great call. Uh, It's kind of what you said. Just we don't know how to respond when the issue is mental, when the issue is um, it's not like you said, a broken leg or, uh, you know, a fever, but it's uh, it's depression or anxiety or suicidal thoughts or whatever else it might be. Um, but that we as the church uh, just need to do um, the more uncomfortable but better work of of elevating these conversations. I just saw a tweet earlier today where somebody said, I couldn't believe that my pastor told a story this week and didn't make a big deal of it. But he began the story with, I was talking to my therapist and mm-hmm. and that, that just that language, this person in uh, this person's tweet said, uh, was something a they'd never heard and it changed everything as they listened to that pastor. I just think we need more of that, more of that honesty, not just from the pulpit, but from our churches in general. Yeah, hundred percent. I totally agree. And I mentioned it, but coming up next, uh, 10 ways to take care of yourself because things may get worse before they get better. That's from Baptist news global coming up next year on the common good on AM 1160. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You know, normally I only pay attention to the weird category of holidays, but there's some others that aren't categorized as weird that I would maybe offer a counter argument. World Rabies Day. Okay. It's an international holiday, apparently. Is it really? Yeah. Uh, does that All that reminds me of is of the Office episode where doesn't Michael run a fundraiser to try to extra, uh, eradicate rabies? <laughs> oh, man. What does he call it? Oh, I'm going to look it up. That's too funny not to. Go keep going. Oh, please. Do. Also, a wait a minute. Isn't, isn't it? I mean, probably like right about now, the end of Yom Kippur, isn't it? Uh, yeah, today's Yom Kippur, isn't it? I believe yeah, so. I think, it's, I think it wraps up. Okay. Evening at sunset or something like that. Yeah. So, yeah. Happy Yom Kippur to uh, brothers and sisters that are celebrating that. So we had spent the last segment talking. It was much more of like a personal narrative, the article, but it's a, it's a really good article talking about uh, mental illness and suicide in the church. And this isn't specifically about that, but it's related. I, I try to every once in a while work in themes when we're organizing the show. So this is from Baptist News Global, and it says 10 ways to take care of yourself because things may get worse. Before they get better, which some people might hear that and think, 
gosh, thanks for the pick me up. But I appreciate the perspective. <laughs> yeah, and I'll, yeah. let me just read some of it, and then we'll get we'll get into the list. This is also a gift to Brian because Thank you. we know Thank how much you. he loves he loves lists. Um, but it's got it's got a great start. It says twenty twenty has been one heck of a year. Heck of a <laughs> meaning being one word by the way. Yes. The bad news is it isn't over. If I'm reading the tea leaves correctly, we are in for a wild ride these next few months. Between now and the end of the year, we are likely to experience one the second wave of the deadliest pandemic in a century. Two, a vitriolic battle over a seat on the Supreme Court. Three, a contested presidential election. And four, violent clashes in our streets. I hope I'm wrong. I doubt I am wrong. As I think about how this will play out over the next few months, I feel anxiety rise up in me. The temptation toward a resigned hopelessness is real. How about you? How are you doing? Really? A recent study suggests that 25% of Americans are dealing with depression three times more than before the pandemic. Anxiety disorders are on the rise. Substance abuse has increased. Many Americans are simply not okay, and the external circumstances may get worse before they get better. But here's what I know. Fish that swim the deepest are largely unaffected by the storm. Ooh, that's a good line. Fish that swim the deepest are largely unaffected by the storm. In other words, we must all tap deep into ourselves to that place where the spirit of God dwells with the peace that passes understanding. If we want to maintain our mental health during the tumultuous days ahead, each of us needs a plan for protecting our sanity and we need to be enacting that plan right now. We must make self-care a priority. We need to engage in practices right now to help us stay well throughout the coming chaos. The good news is that there are practical steps that each of us can take to safeguard our mental health. Here are 10 ways we can take care of ourselves both now and in the days ahead, which I, I think is such a good frame of mind because a lot of times, not just in mental health, but in a lot of categories, we wait until there's a crisis yeah. for us like, oh, shoot, I need to figure out a plan now. Or now I need <laughs> some kind of reconnaissance plan. Like it's like, nope, it's going to get tough. It's already tough now. Have a plan, which is I appreciate kind of the perspective here and all that. So why don't you kick us off with number one? Yeah, number one, it's just seek help. Most of yeah. us are dealing with COVID fatigue, but if you've noticed a sustained mood change, difficulty sleeping, trouble functioning, or dark thoughts that persist more than a day or two, please seek help. See your doctor, visit a counselor, talk to a pastor. You don't have to suffer alone. Antidepressants are your friends. So seek help. Uh, these aren't numbers, so I'm I'm sure I'm going to lose track of what number this is. But number two, number two. get plenty, get <laughs> plenty of thanks, Brian. Get plenty of sunlight. <laughs> Sunlight is a wonderful way to get vitamin D, which is important for healthy brain functioning. There may be a link between vitamin D deficiency and depression. As the days grow shorter and colder, uh, consider using a light therapy lamp to help you if you suspect that you might have seasonal affective disorder. I didn't realize I suffered from SAD until I moved to Florida and didn't need antidepressants anymore. So go to the sunlight. (laughs) (laughs) Number three, get enough sleep. Sleep helps regulate our moods and emotions. Without sufficient sleep, we can begin to feel anxious and depressed. We can begin, we can become irritable with those we love. Establish a routine for going to sleep and for waking up. Pay attention to your body telling you when it needs more rest. You gave an oh boy because you don't sleep. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I'm trying, man. And here's one that I actually am really passionate about. Embrace beauty. Wake up early before the hustle and bustle and listen to the birds sing. Go on a walk and look for beauty in the plants and the sky and the faces of passerby. Turn off the TV and listen to Bach or Beethoven or Beyonce. Oh, the three Bs. We have five (laughs) senses. We can experience beauty through all five of them. Make it your goal to notice something beautiful every day, which is harder than you realize. But I I mention often how Richard Rohr had a conversation with the brain scientist, and he said, when it comes to ugliness, our brains are like Velcro. When it comes to beauty, our brains are like Teflon. You have to work much harder neurologically to actually like latch on to and appreciate beauty. And uh, I think now more than ever, that's that's a really important discipline. 
Absolutely. I think you're the first person in history to refer to Bach, Beethoven, and Beyonce as the three Bs. <laughs> probably, you're probably not wrong. Number five, uh, this is a big one. Limit news and social media. One hour per day of news or social media is plenty to keep you up on current events. Be careful of social media algorithms designed to suck you into toxic <laughs> rabbit holes. Mm-hmm. Notice how 24-hour news channels keep up their ratings by keeping us anxious and outraged. Set a limit and stick to it. We talk about that a lot, but that's an important one. That's true. We talked about smartphones and social media earlier in the show and the social dilemma last week. I'm sensing a theme here. Yep. Uh, next, what? See, I already forgot. What number is this? Six. Six. Yes. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Eat a healthy diet. Diet is an important part of mental health. Certain mineral deficiencies can contribute to low mood. Limit caffeine. I'm drinking coffee right now, which <laughs> might make you feel anxious. Limit alcohol and discern if you are using alcohol as a crutch for managing stress and anxiety. Uh, number seven. Learn something new. What a great time to learn to play an instrument or pick up that paintbrush. Take an online course in some interesting topic. Read a book outside your normal genre. Better yourself. Grow. Learn something new. And our producer is actually the organist for the Chicago Cubs. Isn't that right, Brian? Maybe he would be open to giving uh, piano and or organ lessons. Didn't run that by him. Let us know if you're interested and maybe we'll. uh... He'll come to your house. He'll come near I you. have a microphone. So <laughs> oh, shoot. Ah, you forgot about that. Huh? He, he used to make appearances much more regularly. I completely forgot that you had Are that you capacity. It's been a while, guys. I missed you. Do you Do you want to do this next one? Do you have the article open? Or I no? do not. No, I was editing the previous. <laughs> there you go. Other responsibility. All right. I'll keep going. Good, good, good to have you back on the show, John. Uh, all right. Number whatever. Get moving. Exercise is a proven way to manage stress and anxiety, boosting brain chemicals linked to mood. Having fitness goals gives us something to focus on other than the bad news of the day. We don't have to run a triathlon to enjoy the benefits of exercise. Include daily walks or yoga a couple times each week can yield tremendous physical and mental benefits. I'll just say going on my like daily walks with my boys yeah. has been like one of my favorite rhythms in this pandemic. It's been yeah. great. Uh, next one, number nine, make productive use of anger. It's okay to mm-hmm. feel angry. Your anger is telling you something. Something's wrong. A boundary has been crossed. Recognize your anger. Sit with it. Study your anger without judging it. You don't have to act on it immediately, but let it inform you. You may need to use that anger as fuel to make some necessary change in your life or in the world around you. All right, number That's 10. Good one. I like that yeah. one. All right, last but not least, drum roll, please. Anyone? That cannot be the fastest <laughs> drum. That was one-handed. Right. You need to go back and listen to the uh, take up an instrument one. Um, yes. all right, last but not least, take up a spiritual practice. I would say amen and amen. Maybe you could set a goal to read the New Testament. You could take up contemplative prayer or gratitude journaling. Engage in social justice or activism as a spiritual practice. Write a spiritual memoir. It doesn't have to be. <laughs> it doesn't have to be a tomb. Just a just a story about your faith with its ups and downs, belief and doubt. Friends, things may get worse before they get better. Establishing self-care practices now will help each other, uh, help each of us navigate the tumultuous days ahead. We may not be able to single-handedly stem the rising tide of chaos in the world, but we may be able to stem the rising tide of anxiety and depression within ourselves. Take care of you. Live that might live that you might fight another day. That's from Rhonda Abbott Blevins over at Baptist News Global. And like always, and all of our articles that's over on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. And I would just reiterate that. Take care of yourself wherever you are, whenever you're listening to this. Take care of yourself. And uh, we're all in this together. For Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins. And you, my friends, have been listening to The Common Good right here on AM 1160. Hope for your life.